we are continuing our series on the rhythm of God, and we are looking at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 9. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 9. We're also going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and 17. So we'll actually start there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, and then we'll skip down to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 9. And we've been looking at this series called The Rhythm of God and making the case that if we want to understand who God is and how he works and how he moves and how he works, not just throughout the Bible, but how he works in our life, that we can simply go to the first chapters of the first book of the Bible and you can see these rhythms. We've looked at the rhythm of redemption in chapter 1, that Genesis chapter 1 is not just the creation story, but it's through the creation story, God is revealing to us how he will work in the hearts of men and women, how he will work out his rhythm of redemption throughout all of history. We looked at the rhythm of work and rest, and last week we looked at the rhythm of relationships, and we're hopefully seeing patterns and rhythms and God, what we will see in these first 12 chapters is the rhythm and the patterns and what God will repeat over and over and over again, all throughout the Bible, all throughout history, and all throughout our lives. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 this morning. Chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, and then skipping down to chapter 3. Hear the word of God. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called man and said to him, where are you? God, for the few moments that we have left together this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receiving truth, that we would see the rhythm of God even in the midst of chaos, in the midst of the fall. And Lord, I pray that we would leave here today changed people because we have encountered the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Um, Often, uh, I have very, 
very exciting and engaging and very interesting conversations with my middle daughter. If you know my middle, middle daughter, Lydia, she just loves to talk. She loves to engage. And one night we were having a conversation, this was about two weeks ago, and we were having a conversation about school and her friends and what she likes and what she doesn't like. And then out of the blue she said, I saw God. And I said, wow, okay. And we had a very fascinating conversation, very engaging conversation about God. And she said, yeah, I saw him and, and, and I also saw his wife. I said, okay, this is about to get really interesting. She said, yeah, yeah you, you know, God has a wife. I, I saw them. And I said, well, where did you see them? Oh, at Target the other day. And she said, and it wasn't good. They were really, really mad. And so as we were, began to unpack that conversation, and it was, it was interesting. I, I still don't know exactly what she saw, but she, she thought she saw God and his wife, and they were mad at Target, uh, which is hilarious. Uh, but it's interesting, when you, when you do get to chapter 3 here, you do wonder, how will God react? Is God mad? And we do see God here. We actually see God and he's walking in the garden. And Adam and Eve have no idea that the, they, they've just been given everything they needed for life. They're in paradise. In chapters 1 and 2, we're told that everything's good. Everything is perfect. And then we see it's not so good. It's not so perfect. You see, up until chapter 3, everything was going so well. Everything's good. Everything is great. Everything's ideal. They're in the midst of paradise. And then Adam and Eve encounter the serpent. And chapter 3 is known as the fall. It's known as the dark moment in history where sin and death enter the world. And nothing, not only for Adam and Eve, but for all of us, nothing will ever be the same. Because the reality is if they couldn't make it in perfection, if they couldn't make it in paradise, surely they would not be able to make it after the fall. And so we wonder, is God mad? We see God. We see God here in chapter 3. And we, we wonder, how will he react? How will he react now that Adam and Eve have disobeyed the one commandment they weren't supposed to disobey? The one thing you could eat of anything in paradise. Perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationship with one another. You can have whatever you want. Just don't do this one thing and eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what we see here, and what I want us to look at briefly this morning, is not, is not only the rhythm of God, but I want us to look at the rhythm of man. I want us to look at the rhythm of humanity as well. Because before we can understand how God will react to this situation here in Genesis 3, the fall of man and sin and death entering in the world, we first have to understand what is the rhythm of, of humanity. Because we see it here in Genesis chapter 3. In the fall, in the first few verses, we see how they lose paradise, and we see how sin comes into the world and death. And the first thing that we see in chapter 3, we see the serpent. 
And we know that the serpent here in chapter 3, verse 1, is Satan. That Satan is real. But that Satan was made. He was created by God. He's under God's authority. He's under God's power. But it says that in verse 1 that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He's crafty in, the way, in this way. He knows exactly where you're weak. And he knew exactly where Eve would be weak. He knew exactly where to get her. And that's what Moses means when he says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God has made. But it's important to understand as we unpack these first nine verses in Genesis chapter 3, that it's the beast of the field that God has made. Sometimes we treat the serpent or we treat Satan as if he is equal in power and strength and authority to God, but he's not. Even Satan himself, in the form of a serpent here in Genesis 3, is under the hand of God, under the authority of God, under, under the power of God. Even he submits to God. And the serpent was more crafty, and he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, remember, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, it's very clear what God said. You can eat of anything, and you will live. You eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will die. So the first thing that we see in here, in Genesis chapter 3, The first thing that we see is Eve listening to the laugh of the serpent. Listening to the laugh of the serpent. How is the serpent laughing at her? You see, in the Hebrew, in in verse 1 there, when the serpent says, did God actually say? In the Hebrew, he's he's actually being sarcastic there. It's as as as, it's as if the serpent is saying to Eve, now wait a second, did God really say this? And And almost, do you really believe this? And he's trying to catch Eve in a trap. He's using laughter. He's basically mocking Eve and saying, wait a second. God would would put you in this garden. He would give you everything you need. and, And he would basically say, you can't eat from this tree? God couldn't really have said that. Now, in chapter 2, it's as clear as day what God said to Eve. But he was crafty in the way that he words it. He comes in the form not only as a serpent, but almost as a winsome theologian. Let's have some God talk here. Let me really explain and really get you to understand what God means. And so the first thing that Eve does, and the first thing that we do all the time in understanding how we work as human beings, is we listen to the laugh. We listen to the laugh. And the laugh comes to you in this form. In pressure situations, when you're under stress, when the world is tempting you with everything under the sun that it has to offer, it's as if the serpent is coming to you saying, come on, you're educated. You live in South Florida in the 21st century. Do you really believe this stuff that you talk about at church on Sunday? Do do, do you really... Are you really restricted from doing this or doing that? Do you really have a a set of values and morals that you have to abide to? Uh, The serpent comes in crafty ways and gets you to rethink what you know is true. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? 
It, it seems as easy as just Eve saying, yeah, just, he just said it. What do you mean? He said, don't eat from the tree. And even there in this, her moment of weakness, the serpent comes in in this craftiness, and he gets her to rethink. Do you really think God said that? He's basically mocking her. He's laughing at her. And the serpent laughs at you this morning. The serpent laughs at you in your life. The serpent laughs at you and says, do you really believe this old God thing? (laughs) I mean, look at your life, right? You might be here this morning and you go, I lost my job. I've lost my spouse. I might be losing my home. I'm estranged from my kids. I have cancer. I've lost my job. And the serpent in those moments, those moments of weakness, comes in and whispers in your ear and says, come on, (laughs) you don't really believe all that, do you? You don't really believe what God says is true. So the first thing that we see here is Eve listening to the laugh, almost rolling his eyes as he laughs and he jokes about Eve believing this to be true. The second thing that we see here is in verse 5. After the serpent gets her to question what God really said and almost mocks her and jokes with her and laughs at her, in verse 5 it says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So not only is Eve listening to the laugh, she starts to believe the lie. And that's what we do as well. How does, how does, how does Satan approach us? and confront us with wanting to believe a lie. What does he say here in verse 5? You're not going to die. You're not going to die. The reason God doesn't want you to eat of that tree is because you'll become like God. It's almost as if the serpent is saying, God's jealous. You're not going to die. He just doesn't want you to do it because... Your eyes will be open. So he entices her to reject God in exchange for power. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Where does the serpent get her in her weak moment? He tries to get her to believe that God is really not for her. God's not for it. Because basically what the serpent's saying here in verse 5, if God was really for you, he'd let you do it. He'd let you do whatever you want. He'd let you succeed. He'd let you advance. He'd let you get a better life. See, the problem is God's not really for you because if he was for you, he would let you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you would advance. You would have a better life. So you see, that was what was enticing Eve. She was like, wait a second. You're saying this paradise thing isn't isn't as good as it gets? You're saying there's something more? There's something better? And that the serpent wants her to believe that lie. You see, actually... Eve, God's kind of holding you back. He's really not for you. He's really not good. See, the serpent doesn't get her in trying to doubt God's existence. He doesn't even get Eve to doubt his power. That's not where she'll be weak. Where she'll be weak is failing to believe that God is good and that God is for her. You see, where sin creeps into your life, the issue beneath the issue, the sin beneath the sin, 
You see, we look at sin as just the things that we do or fail to do. The sin underneath the sin is ultimately what? Failing to believe that God is for you. And if I fail to believe that God is for me, if I fail to believe that God is really the God that is for me and after and believing that God wants the best for my life and is for me in the sense that he wants good things for me and he is he is good and that he is merciful and that he does love me. Once I start to doubt that, that is when sin creeps into your life. When I fail to believe that God is not enough, that he hasn't supplied everything I need, therefore I need to find something else out there and it might actually be over at that tree. So the first thing that Eve does is she listens to the laugh. She listens to the mockery. Yeah, this does sound kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? The second thing she does is she believes the lie in verse 5. Maybe God isn't for me. And the last thing that we see is in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. The third thing that she does is she looks to the tree. She looks to the tree. And now what's so significant about the tree? commentators have debated this for years like what was it about the tree and there was nothing in and of itself that was bad that's the point it was a good tree God had made it right see the tree in and of itself wasn't bad it's when the woman and eventually Adam Adam and Eve looked to the tree for their hope It's when they looked to something that was good that God created and said, maybe I can have a hope in addition to God. Maybe I can hope there's something that this tree will provide me that God is not providing me right now in this moment. See, as soon as Eve looked to the tree and she saw that it was good, what did God say? Now, when you look to the tree, it's evil. When you look to the tree as your, your hope, it is evil. It reminds us of Isaiah 5, 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. God said it was evil, and the serpent convinces Eve, the woman, to look at it, something that God said to stay away from, and said, it is good. You see, the problem in and of itself is not the tree. It's what the tree stood for. And we do it in a hundred different ways. Yes, we don't worship trees today. Maybe some of you do, and that's, we'll talk later. But fill in the blank. I know on Sunday that God's my only hope, but Monday morning, my, it's my job and my career is my hope. That's where I'm going to find my hope. I know on Sunday morning, I, I hear that God is my only hope, that he provides everything I need, but... Maybe it's my spouse, maybe it's my kids, maybe it's my home, maybe it's a vacation, maybe it's retirement. You fill in the blank. We look to the tree in a hundred different ways for our hope. So the serpent gets Eve, gets the woman to listen to the laugh, listen to the mockery, believe the lie, and look to the tree. To look to the tree. Choosing a tree that would offer her hope. See, this is the rhythm of all of our lives. This is what confronts us every single day from the moment we wake up. It is as if the serpent is whispering in our ear, don't really believe all that stuff. 
God's not really for you. There is a hope outside of God, and you all know it. And that is the rhythm of our lives. And it's this vicious cycle that not only Eve falls into, that not only Adam falls into, but it will forever mark. If we want to understand how we work and how we operate in this world, you just have to read the first nine verses of of Genesis chapter 3. This is how we work. It's the rhythm of our lives. And then we see what happens. What happens in verse 7 and 8? Utter chaos. In verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open. And what did they do? They realized that they were naked and they were ashamed, right? We talked about this last week, that they were naked and unashamed. Now they're naked and ashamed. And what do they do? They start to scramble. They sew fig leaves together. In verse 7. In verse 8, what do they do? They run from God and they hide in the trees. The fig leaves was alienation with each other. It was separation from each other. We're going to hide from one another with fig leaves. The trees represented alienation from God. All hell breaks loose. Why? Because she listened to the laugh, believed the lie, and she looked to the tree. And sin and death enter into the world and nothing will ever be the same. This is known as the fall of humanity and the fall of the world. And the reason that we're committed here at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in reconciling people, reconciling people to God and reconciling people to one another, all gets its basis here in Genesis chapter 3. That only through Jesus can the fig leaves be removed. Only through Jesus can we come out from behind the trees and be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. But what we see here in verse 7 and 8 is absolute devastation. Spiritual, psychological, social alienation from God and from one another. And I want to ask you this morning, is this the life that you want? I know it gets uncomfortable when we start talking about sin and its effects. But when we see here in verse 7 and 8, utter chaos and utter devastation, I ask you, is this the life you want? Listening to the laugh, believing the lie, looking to the tree, it offers no hope. It only offers chaos. It only offers devastation. Sin is real and the devil is real. Make no mistake about it. And if you don't think it, you haven't lived long enough. And you haven't really been honest with yourself. Because when you're honest with yourself and the reality of the world, you see that all of the pain and all of the agony of life, when you turn on the TV and you see chaos throughout our country and throughout our world, all you have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3 and go, Aha, now I understand. Listening to the laugh, believing in the lie, and looking to the tree. But as we wrap up this morning, there's one more verse in verse 9. And if you didn't know the rest of the Bible, you might wonder that maybe chapter 9 is game over. Verse 7, Adam and Eve are scrambling. Get fig leaves. Hurry up. Come on. Put the fig leaves on. Verse 8, hide behind the trees. God's coming. And you can almost picture, try to emotionally connect with this passage real quick. You can only imagine Adam and Eve almost bracing themselves 
Fig leaves on, check. Hide behind the trees, check. God's coming. And almost hiding behind the trees with the fig leaves on, almost covering themselves, bracing themselves, eyes closed, and just wondering, okay, in verse 9, we're all about to read, game over, God blows it all up, and it's all done. And almost bracing themselves, and God does what in verse 9? But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Don't miss that. There is no reason why God had to come down. There is no reason why God had to pursue them. God would have been perfectly just. God is a just God, and he would have been perfectly just to go, game over, it's all done, thanks for playing, you disobeyed, and it's all over now. You see, verse 9 is some of the most hopeful words in all the scripture. God comes down. God pursues, and God calls them out. He calls for them. He doesn't destroy them. He doesn't wreck them. He calls for them in their pain, in the devastation, the devastating reality of sin and death and all of the chaos that has ensued here in verses 7 and 8. God comes down and he pursues his broken children, hiding. He comes down and he looks for them. And this, this rhythm of pursuit, this rhythm of God's relentless pursuit in the face of the rhythm of man of listening to the laugh, listening to the lie, and looking to the tree will always be God's pattern for the rest of history. He will run after Abraham. He will run after Noah. He will run after Joseph. He will run after the disobedient children in the wilderness. He will run after Moses. He will run after David and so on and so forth of constantly having to pursue, relentlessly pursuing his disobedient, rebellious children. And it all culminates... The rhythm of God's relentless pursuit all culminates in the coming down of God once again at the cross. And then at the cross, Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 18. What does Jesus do in the midst of the rhythm of man listening to the laugh and believing the lie and and looking to the cross? What does Paul write about the cross? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing, but to those that are being saved, it is the power of God. What is Paul trying to say? Yes, the world will laugh at you. The world will think it is absolutely, utterly ridiculous that you believe in this whole God thing. He will think it, the world will think it's utterly ridiculous that you come to church, that you volunteer, that you've committed your life to Jesus, that you give, that you participate, that you follow the Bible and believe that it is really the word of God. They will think it's absolutely, utterly ridiculous. But what Paul is saying, what seems foolish to the world is the power of God for you. And then what does he say? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That it would actually be through this foolishness of God, even willing to send his son to the cross to die for us. It would be through the foolishness that actually the wisdom of the world would be turned upside down. What Paul is saying, where's the wisdom of the world now? See, he will take those people and he will take the lies of, the, of Satan 
and he will turn it upside down and he will say, now who's the foolish one? You think you're wise to reject God and his promise, but God is for you. And it is through the foolishness of the cross, this absolute ridiculous notion that God would send his son to die for rebellious people like us, that the world will never understand. But it is the power of God for your salvation this morning. And what Jesus did is he took that laugh of the serpent. He took the laugh and the mocking and the ridicule on the cross, and he said, bring it. He took the lie of the serpent that said, God is not for you. And he said, look to the cross. God is so for you, I will even be willing to be hung on a cross to show you once and for all that I am for you and that I am good. That my son who is good will become bad so that you might become good, so that I might look upon you and say, that is the righteousness of my son upon you. Jesus takes on the laughter and the mockery. He takes on the greatest lie and is nailed to the cross. And he takes that tree. He takes the tree of death that brought death and chaos into the world in the garden. And he goes to another garden. Century later, in a dark garden, centuries later, Jesus would say, yes, I will go hang on the tree of death so that we would no longer have to place our hope in a tree but that we would place our hope in the man that hangs on the tree. And that is what Jesus does, relentlessly pursuing his rebellious, wayward bride, the church. God is for you. Let me close with this. There was a person that worked for the Department of Justice, and they found out about this issue in India, child slavery. And so he put together a commission to travel over to India to figure out what is going on in the area of child slavery and human trafficking. And they went to this one village in particular, and what they were doing in this one village in the area of child slavery is these poor people in the village couldn't pay to provide medical care for their children. So what they would do, the wealthy in the community would step up to the plate and they would pay for the children to be cared for. But how would they repay the debt? They would repay the debt to the wealthy families 200% interest a day until the debt was paid off. The point is you never get out of debt. Your child is forever indebted to the wealthy families. And so the Department of Justice goes over and some of the group in, the, in this uh, commission were believers. They were Christians. They believed in the gospel. And so they were going not just on behalf of, of, of the United States, but they were going on behalf of the kingdom of God into these dark places. And everybody told them, go home, go home, because you're going to have to find a magistrate to, to, to share your case with them. And the magistrates are in the pockets of the wealthy. Go home for fear of your lives. It'll never work. And so they couldn't find one magistrate to listen to their case. They had all the facts, 40 cases in this one village alone of child slavery and human trafficking. And nobody would listen to them. And the Christians in the group, they, they were burnt out. They said, nobody's for us. Nobody's for these kids. What's God trying to do? Why won't he open any doors? And they, they found this little village church. 
And, and they say, you know what? We just need to pray. This isn't working. And they go and they pray and they worship. And at the end, they go up to the pastor and they explain the case. And they say, would you pray with us? And at the end of the prayer, the pastor says, tomorrow you will have success. Go to the magistrate. And they say, well, did, did God speak to you? I mean, how, how do you know this? And the pastor says, go to the magistrate tomorrow. You will have his favor. It's, this is great, but how do we know? And he said, trust me, God is at work here. The magistrate will rule for you. He will be for you. And they go, that's great, but how do we know? He said, because I'm the magistrate. You see, we have a God that is the creator of the world. We have a God that is the king. We have a God that is the magistrate, but we also have a God that is for us through Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that you would rest in that this morning. That you would be able to pursue God this morning and his righteousness because first God has pursued you. That you would be able to love God above anything else this morning because God has first loved you. G.K. Chesterton said, you ask a religious person if they're a Christian and they get offended. Of course I'm a Christian. He said, you ask a Christian if they're a Christian and they just laugh because it's utterly ridiculous that God would love people like us. We have slapped the face of God and then he kissed us.